Hi everybody, it's Bob Tulio. Welcome to Automatic Merchandisers Vending and OCS Nation, the podcast for the convenience services industry. In 2023, Automatic Merchandiser recognized Jennifer Fox, president of Fox Vending in the Chicago area, as one of the industry's most influential women. It became apparent to me when doing this interview that if I wanted to stay within my usual 15-minute podcast format, Jennifer Fox's story had to be told in two parts. But I think you will find the content quite compelling. And when we run across a story like this, it's certainly worth a two-part podcast. And we'll be doing it occasionally this year. Welcome to part one, where Jennifer really opens up about her journey and the state of the convenience services industry. In part two, you will hear the dramatic story of Dragonolia and Heron Project, all driven by the loss of her brother and her personal struggles that Jennifer has overcome in her life. Plus, more insights from her on what makes her company successful and her belief that this is a special time in our industry, a time where operators can rewrite the script for convenience services. Fox Vending was started by her father, Jim, in 1962, when he placed a cigarette machine in a bar on the south side of Chicago. That turned into a full-fledged music and games operation. When he became a family man, he decided to direct the business toward traditional product vending, eliminating the late-night emergency service calls to bars and restaurants that are often prevalent in the music and games business. I can relate with Jim Fox, who's now 85 years young. Just like Jim, I spent a few Saturday nights inside the controls of a jukebox or clearing a coin jam from a cigarette vendor, both of which were considered emergency service calls. Like so many operators I've spoken to, Jennifer had no intention of being part of the family business. But her dad was at a point where he clearly needed some help, and like Jennifer, Jim was a pretty good salesperson good enough to recruit his daughter. I went to college for graphic design and graduated in 99. I went back at 23 years old, so I was a late bloomer. And I was freelancing and just minding my own business. And my oldest sister is an engineer, so she was never going to come into the business. And my younger brothers were young. And so my dad, I think, just was really desperate to start to dial it back and think about you know, next steps, like he was young where he wasn't thinking of selling, but there was just really nobody in the family. So he approached me and, um, to be perfectly honest, I, my dad and I are very close. And so I felt obligated to say yes, but I had no interest in the business whatsoever. And so I made a pact with him that I'd give him six months and no hard feelings if I didn't like it, assuming that I would hate it. So in my mind, I went in for six months and then I fell in love with it. So that was 23 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So was he was he selling you and trying to make it a soft landing for you when you when you went into the business? Was he really trying to be positive, make it work for you? Yes, yes. And you know, I I think he did a really good job at building a company that was had a really strong foundation. You know, we don't have any debt. So while it's hard to grow a you know grow a business like some of the my competitors out there without any debt, it also has just it's a lot of stability there. So mm-hmm. he was selling it like, look, I've, I've built this great business and we, you know, it's, we make money and we don't have any debt and it's, it can be all yours. And, and that, that is what ultimately got me to stay. But I mean, when he sold me, I, I really, really did not think I would 
stay there more than six months because I'm I'm an artist and I that's what I went to school for and I have no business background. But it turns out I did fall in love with the personal pride that comes from doing your own thing. And he started something with from nothing, right? Like he started Fox Venning with with one cigarette machine with nothing, and he grew it to where we are today. And so he had all of that boots on the ground kind of experience. So it took a lot of time for my dad to trust me and trust that I had learned enough and put in, you know, paid my dues and put in the time before he really could feel comfortable stepping away. So, I mean, it's been 23 years now, but the first, I would say 10 years were a real challenge. So in those 10 years, so basically we're talking about 2000 to about 2010. Yeah. A lot of uh, political, economic, and world strife going on. Uh, certainly some big problems with the markets and everything else. That was an interesting time to be in business. What was your role at that point when you came in? I mean, what did he say? You're going to wash pots? Did he say you're going to go out and run a route? Did he say you're going to go out and sell? You're going to be director of operations? What was your role? You've talked to enough small family-owned businesses, vending operators, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. There aren't really titles when you work for a small family-owned business, right? It's not like I walked into one role. That's just not how it works. You Mm -hmm. are always wearing multiple hats. So I did have to be on a route for the first month. And then honestly, I did everything from sweep the warehouse floor to handle all the sales. Um, I started May 15th of 2000. And the weekend after 4th of July the guy that was acting as operations manager never came back to work. Like he just quit. I just did everything. I mean, I just filled whatever shoes needed to be filled. So I've been on moves before I've cleaned pots. I mean, I, you're not, you're really not above any job when you're running your own business because at the end of the day, the work needs to get done and somebody needs to do it. I primarily handle all of the sales and customer service. That's what I'm good at. That's where I shine. It's what I love. But, you know, stepping in in a a leadership role, obviously, daily, too, to make sure that things are running properly. You do coffee service, you do vending, you do micro markets, you do pantry. Correct. Give me a difference between where the company was at, general profile, in 2000 when you first joined it and where it is right now. When I started, we probably were doing a similar amount of sales with twice as many routes. So we, you know, we've put a lot of the technology and efficiencies into place with the VMS and pre-kitting and all of the things so that we are, you know, doing the same amount of work, but with a lot less overhead, which has been awesome. We just do things differently. We're back in the day, you know, Chicago has also changed a lot. There used to be 20 of us, like 20 really good, strong, independent family-owned businesses. We were all friends, but there was a lot of competition in Chicago. And now in 2023, I mean, with all of the acquisitions that have happened, they're really, aside from the three big players now, um, Sodexo, Canteen, and Aramark, you have us and Mark Vend, right? We're the two- Sure bigger family-owned companies, and they're larger than us. But certainly there are other smaller operators. But for the most part, the companies with longevity and a reputation, it's the two of us. So we have the luxury of being able to operate differently as well, where back in the day, you may have done a lot of things that like, I don't feel like I need to do now. I just passed up on two car dealerships who, you know, I pretty much had that business in the bag. I was excited. Good bread and butter accounts. And it was going to be over $10,000 in brand new coffee equipment. And I 
sent over our agreement. And she wrote back and said that she wouldn't be able to work with me if they had to sign a contract with any kind of term. And I, and I hear that a lot. And back in the day we used to do it. And I've really changed the way we run Fox vending where I don't want to work with customers that don't value the relationship because that's what sets us apart from the competitors is how we take care of our customers. And there's got to be value to that. And it's a commitment on both ends. So if I'm going to commit ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 in money to buy you brand new equipment that you want, then I need a commitment from you that you're going to work with us for X amount of time. And so I sure. said, and I, so I, I walked away from the business. I'm proud of the way we do business like that because the customers we do have do value us and they work with us, not just because we're cheap or we give stuff away, but because we provide excellent service and they're willing to pay for it and they're willing to sign an agreement and make the commitment. And then we have to live up to our commitment of providing great service. Right. So like, sure. I'm happy to write a four cause clause into our agreement. If we happen to not be doing a great job, anybody should be able to get out of that relationship. But I'm confident putting that in our contract because I know we're going to do a great job. It's changed, no doubt about that. But I love what you did with the car dealerships because I'm I'm completely on board with that concept. I mean, if you have a non-performance clause in there and that's still not good enough, then you know what? There's something fundamentally wrong with the way they operate as a business. That's how I feel. So I'm, I'm with well, you. Well, you know, I will say you. this. And no disrespect to the the my dad and the, all the people that came before me, but I feel like as an industry we have done a a really poor job developing an industry and educating the end consumer as to what is fair and reasonable. So we created this problem, I believe, as an industry. I really do believe that because customers didn't get the idea that they can get fifteen thousand dollars of free equipment from nowhere. They got that idea because they've been able to do it. It's the same as commission. I mean, the the idea that we pay a percentage of the sales back to a client is bananas. And that idea came from somewhere. And it came from an operator or a salesperson desperate for business that thought, I know, I'll buy their business. It's asinine that we do all of the work we have all of the investment, we have all of the risk, and we take all of the loss in any product that goes into the garbage can. And then we are still paying a percentage of the sales back for the sheer privilege of having machines. When we are the ones that are taking care of your employees, right? We're, we're doing a great job. You've got machines, your employees don't have to leave. And then I'm going to pay you a percentage of my hard work. In what other industry is somebody that you're buying something from paying you a percentage back to do? So? It's crazy to me. I've always prided myself on knowing that the majority of the time we don't get business, it's because of price. And I'm okay with that because this is too hard of a job in too hard of an industry, in too hard of a climate to not make money. The sheer amount of times I've heard somebody say, we need to keep the prices down for my employees. If I had a dollar for every time I had somebody say that to me, and I very respectfully will reply with all due respect, your employees are not my problem. My employees are my problem. And if I can't pay my employees, then I'm not going to be able to take good care of you. So you're welcome to subsidize if you want to keep the prices down for your employees. I'm happy to facilitate that. I had a situation just this year 
Because the last two years, we even took it a step further and we stopped asking permission to raise prices. I mean, how crazy is that? That we have been asking our customers permission to raise prices. I've never gotten, ever gotten a phone call from Pepsi or Coke saying, can we raise your prices this year? I just get a generic form letter in the mail and then a call from our rep to talk about it. And that's it. It's just done. And that here we are asking permission and then allowing customers to say no. So two years ago, I said, no more. We're not doing that. We're going to put a letter on every machine, send a, you know an email, send a hard copy, and then we're coming and raising prices. And so for two years, that's what we've done. Mm-hmm. So I had a customer this year call me and he was a new point of contact, so I hadn't met him yet. And he's not too far from our office. And he said, you know, Jennifer, he sent me an email, you know, Jennifer, um, we need to get together and meet. I want to introduce, you know, I want you to come in so I can meet you and introduce myself. I'm the new GM, yada, yada. I said, sure, no problem. Absolutely. What time works? And can you give me an idea of the topics that you want to discuss? So I make sure I come with all the information I need. Do you want to see product detail reports, sales, whatever? And he wrote back and he said, basically, I want to talk to you about this pop pricing. 225 is way too high and my employees just aren't going to pay it. And I said, no problem. Okay. So on my way to the meeting, I stopped at the gas station one block from their office and I bought a Pepsi and I got a receipt and I bought a Coke and I got a second receipt and I put them in my bag and I walked into the meeting, sat down with him and then six more guys stream into the meeting, which is always funny to me because I think they think that like that makes me nervous or something. So I introduced myself to everyone and Right, at, right out of the gate, he's going to be a real tough guy, right? He's going to show all of his employees, like, this is how it gets done. And he says, yeah, no, I mean, the pop was $1.75 and now it's $2.25 and I just, it, that's not going to work for us. And this is, a, this is an account that I have six locations. So this is just one building and every location is managed by somebody different, but it's a really good piece of business. Mm-hmm. And I reach back into my bag and I put the Pepsi and I put the Coke down and I slapped the receipts down. And I said, I certainly can't tell you how to manage your employees, but if I were in your shoes and my employees complained about the 225 pricing on my pop machines, I would tell them that they're welcome to drive to the gas station at the end of the block and pay 279 plus tax. And there was just crickets in the room. Right. And I said, I mean, I just, I understand where you're coming from. I understand the shoes you're in. Everyone's complaining to you and you feel like you have to do something and I get it. But I can't give you $1.75.20 ounce. There's no such thing as that anymore. It doesn't exist. In fact, I should be charging you $2.50. And you missed the last price increases, which, which is the only reason it wasn't at $2 already. I said, but Pepsi and Coke, they don't ask my permission. They just raise my prices. Fuel has doubled all the things. So I can't, I can't lower the price. And you know, that meeting ended with him actually lowering all of the prices on his vending machines and subsidizing them for his employees. Good solution. Right. And so I just, I feel like if more operators would have the courage to run their business in that manner, which is responsible, we could have a whole different industry on our hands. But unfortunately the people in my shoes, and like I said, no disrespect to my dad and all that came before me, I'm having to clean up the mess that was created by past generations because they didn't have the courage to say to a customer, no, I can't do that. Knowing full well that, yes, maybe Canteen will give that to you, but you know what they're not going to give you? Me and my team and the service we provide. And so do we always win that meeting and win that battle? No, for sure not. We lose business on price. But I'm okay with that because I know what service they're getting. Now, they might never come back to me because they're going to have to have their tail between their legs, right? Like that car dealership, 
I don't know who she's going to find to buy $15,000 in brand new coffee equipment because she, you know, it, it's liquid coffee and a lot of people don't use those machines anymore. Mm-hmm. But will she come back to me if she doesn't find anybody else? I don't know, but that's okay. I want to be able to take really good care of the customers that take good care of us and are good to us and understand that we give X and we have to get Y in order to do it. And um, more and more people are understanding that. That's it for now. On the next episode of Vending in OCS Nation, it's part two of Jennifer Fox's story, how Dragonolia and the Heron Project have helped her heal. Plus, Jennifer holds nothing back as she provides industry insights on consolidation, competition, and what she believes is a rare opportunity that operators have right now. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe and you'll never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Bob Tulio.